Father in heaven, we thank you for this day to gather together, to be gathered by your word, and Lord, as it is now proclaimed, as it is announced and heralded, and we, we listen, Lord, I pray that you would, by your spirit, work those things which it left your mouth to accomplish. Lord, I pray that it would create faith in your people, that we would delight in you and trust in you, rest in you, obey you, follow you, and love you in response to your love to us, which was certainly first. And I pray that you would work that in us in Jesus' name. Amen. You have a seat. If you've got your Bibles, I want to ask you to turn to Galatians chapter 4. And we're going to begin reading at verse 21. Galatians 4, verse 21. <clears throat> Galatians 4, verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave woman was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She's Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother, for it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children uh, children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. What does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman, thus far God's word. We're all going to readily admit that is a very difficult passage. Just as the passage that Brother Kevin read for us, very difficult passages. But let's put it in its context. Let's put them in their context And we can understand that this is actually the capstone. This is the crescendo. This is a major blow. This is the landing punch that the Apostle Paul gives to the false teachers who would cause controversy for those simply trusting in the gospel of Christ. The gospel Paul often just simply calls promise. The promise. The gospel. The promise. He uses those words interchangeably. And remember, he also is going to use things like law and works and circumcision and flesh and who your birth mother or father is. He's going to use all those things. He's put in the category of the flesh. And then he's going to put the other category will be spirit and trust and faith and promise and gospel. Okay. And see, what we're, what we're looking at here is this. From the very beginning of, the, uh, of time, 
Right after Adam and Eve fell, do you remember that Adam and Eve were promised that there would be a son, a singular son that would be born to them at some point in the future who would conquer on their behalf? That son who would be bruised as he crushed Satan and death and destruction and the curse and sin for them. That was promised all the way at the beginning. There would be a son born. And the question is this. Those who wish to be God's children, who wish to be saved, is it really enough that that one son who would be born sometime in the future, that they would be saved by his all-sufficient merit? Not based on who they are or what they've done, not on their religious credentials, not on their DNA or genetic credentials, not on the things that they've done, but on the things that that son would have done. This is the question that has always loomed large over the world and even over the household of God. Is that one son, that one singular heir, is his merits, are his merits going to be enough. And for a time, the household of God was put under extra rules. Paul calls this the the law or the law of Moses, or he calls it Moses, or he calls it the book of the law. These extra rules that sort of separated out the household of God, the, the people of Israel. And remember, Paul has already said that these rules never made them God's people. It never saved them. It never made anybody a child of God. In fact, it didn't make anybody even a child of Abraham. But for a time, it marked out those people who were waiting for the inheritance to come. That inheritance would come when the heir came. And how does a father treat immature heirs who aren't ready to inherit? He treats them with extra special rules He controls more of their life. He makes choices for them instead of them making those choices. He treats them kind of like servants in his house. Remember, he says that. For a time, the servants and the children, the heirs, kind of look the same. Right? We said, what is the difference between a firefighter on the job and a two-year-old girl? They both don't get to pick their own clothes. And so we see that this is how the the nation of Israel was the household of God before the heir came, before Jesus came. You know, they were were treated like like children. They couldn't pick their own things to drink out of. You know, you, you might say that their moms and dads made them drink out of the same kind of cups that Kevin drank out of this morning while he was playing the drums, a sippy cup. But now the heir has come. The son, the one son that was promised to Eve. The one son that was promised to Abraham. That anybody who would be a child of Abraham, anybody who would be a child of God, would inherit through this guy. Through what he has done. Through who he is. The kind of heir he is. But of course... This, uh, and this, this is received by trusting in that heir, by trusting in the promise about that heir. Because the Lord Jesus Christ was born as 
a human. And as a human, he kept the law for us. And as a human, he was cursed and damned by God on the cross for the sins of all who would trust in him. And as a human, he rose from the dead. And Paul is abundantly clear. If you trust in the promise that God makes about that man, about that son, you will inherit with that son. And you will inherit with that son all that he deserves rather than what you deserve. Now, early on in church history, even here as Paul is addressing, false teachers creep into the church. Maybe that, maybe that son's merit was not all sufficient. Maybe it's not quite enough. Maybe you have to do some extra things or maybe be, you know, you have to be ethnically Jewish or you have to do these things and maybe you can add to it. Maybe you can supplement Christ's credentials and sort of gain more for your relationship with God. Be more of a son of God. You can advance this sonship. Improve on Christ's sonship. You know, it, sure, it would be great to inherit Abraham's promises, uh, you know, by, by trusting, by trusting. But wouldn't it be better to be like an heir according to the flesh? Like to inherit, you know, like one of Abraham's actual children, you know, like Isaac? And Paul says, you're not paying attention. The child of Abraham that, that was born according to the flesh was an Isaac. It was Ishmael. Ishmael was born according to the flesh. He's a descendant of Abraham according to the flesh. Be careful what you're asking for. If you're asking to inherit something more than by promise, by being a child of God, more than by promise or trust in the promises, you're asking God to treat you like Ishmael, not like Isaac. It brings us to our first point here. The ones relying on works are not better sons, but slaves. Read this in the first three verses, uh, Galatians 4, 21 to 23. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it's written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman, one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free was born through promise. Thus far, the word. So, the Galatians were hoping that God would stop treating them as adopted children, as spiritual children, as spiritual ch children or heirs of Abraham. And instead, maybe could you start treating us like real children, like real heirs, please. Heirs according to natural birth, physical heirs. The kind of son that gets more than or a different inheritance than spiritual children. And so Paul brings perhaps the most devastating blow to these people when he says that, well, they're thinking they're being asked, they're, they're asking God to treat them like Isaac. What they're asking is actually to be treated by God like Ishmael. When they're saying, please treat me like a Jew by spiritual birth and natural birth, God, it's asking God to treat you like Ishmael. Now, who are these two sons that, that Paul is referring to? These two sons of Abraham? Well, we had part of that uh, story read for us in between sippy cup sips um, by Kevin in the book of Genesis. And, and we have the story of Abraham. Abraham was, 
the father of the people of Israel, the people who would eventually have David as their king and ultimately have Jesus born to them as part of their family. He was the father of these people. God called Abraham out of paganism, out of the Babylon area, likely what is today Iraq. And God called this man by grace. He chose him by grace, which means it was, it was a choice totally undeserved. He didn't see anything different about Abraham, not about any works that he would do. He didn't see how Abraham would act or respond. He didn't even check to see who Abraham's father was. He chose him completely by grace. And he chose to make promises to Abraham. And these promises are for all who would trust in those promises. But they were made to Abraham. But they were made for anybody who would trust those promises. And God promised that Abraham would not alone be saved and forgiven by God, simply by faith, but that God would bring this blessing of justification, of of salvation to people of all nations along with Abraham. And that this would be received by faith in God's promises. God would make much of Abraham and he would make him a great nation. He would make a people too numerous to count. Just like sand on the seashore is too numerous to count and the stars in the heavens are too numerous to count. Now, the question is, is this going to be by natural birth or by supernatural birth? These heirs that are going to be too numerous to count. Is that going to be by natural birth or supernatural birth? We already know that the singular heir, like that one singular heir, just like God promised a singular heir to Adam and Eve, we already know that that singular heir according to the flesh, that guy's going to be coming according to the flesh. We know that's Jesus. But now what about all the other heirs? What about everybody in addition to Jesus who's going to inherit along with Jesus? How are they going to be? How how is God going to assemble that multitude that's so great you can't count them? God could count them, but we can't. Is that going to come by spiritual, supernatural birth or by natural birth? So years go by and Abraham and his wife Sarah are still childless. No offspring, no children. Sarah's unable to become pregnant. Try as they might, month after month, still not pregnant. Still no little life growing inside her. Abraham and Sarah are so terribly sad because of this. Now, most godly married couples who are unable to conceive children are disappointed and saddened by this, but consider how that sadness would be more of a despair if God had promised that you would have children. She's a 90-year-old woman. And the regular monthly signs of potentially being a mother have now stopped, and they stopped long ago. And so the question mark after the word barren is now removed. She is not maybe, but certainly barren. And so assuming that the offspring of Abraham would be an offspring which would come naturally, she comes up with a plan, Sarah does, Abraham's wife, Here's the plan. She has a slave named Hagar. Abraham should try to conceive the natural way with Hagar. Now, if you're thinking this shows great disrespect for human dignity, you are correct. Hagar conceives. She bears a child and he is named Ishmael. Sarah is sinful. Abraham is sinful. And soon it becomes clear as well that 
Hagar is also sinful for since she was able to conceive and Sarah was not, she becomes proud and rubs it in Sarah's face, trying to shame her. Now, Sarah did deserve to be shamed for not trusting God's promises, but she should not have been shamed for her barrenness. Abraham was sure that now he had the kind of heir that God had promised him, an heir by natural birth, Ishmael. But God said, no. No, your heir will come through Sarah, the barren woman. And God visited him and promised him that within a year, Sarah would be holding a baby, which she would have given birth to. Sarah overhears this and she laughs in disbelief. And then she lies when confronted about her disbelieving laughter. Now, in fact, I've actually misnamed this couple so far. Up until this point, they were not Abraham and Sarah. They were Abram and Sarai. But at this point, God changes their names to Abraham and Sarah. Same people, same promises, different names as God fulfills those promises. Sure enough, Sarah becomes pregnant. And about nine months later, a son is born. They name him Isaac, which means laughter. The laughter of unbelief, like the laughter I would get from my family if I told them I would win an NBA championship, was replaced with the laughter of joy, which cannot be contained. But now, here's the problem. You've got two kids in this household, two moms. One mother is slave in the household because of the work she can do. Another mother, a wife by covenant because of marriage promises, which Abraham made to her. One son is born naturally and yet a slave and the other born supernaturally and yet the heir. One natural firstborn and the other a spiritual firstborn. Who would you rather be, says Paul? Who would you rather be? Would you rather be the slave in the household of God or the heir? The child who's claiming blessings because of natural birth is Ishmael. The child who's claiming blessings because of promises and supernatural birth is Isaac. And the false teachers had come into the church and said that to be a real child of God, with all the blessings, you have to recognize Jesus as Messiah of Israel. Yes, that's true. You have to recognize Jesus and trust that he was the Messiah. And you become a spiritual son of Abraham, but... To get all the promises of Abraham, of Abraham's heirs, you need to be born according to the flesh, a natural son of Abraham. Now, you could have this done by being born into a Jewish family and then trusting in Jesus, or by becoming a Jew by taking on the food laws, ceremonies, clothing laws, circumcision if you were male. No, says Paul. You're either a spiritual heir of Abraham or not an heir of Abraham. You're either a spiritual heir of Abraham's promises of forgiveness and adoption and fatherly love and eternal life on the new earth with God. And you are a spiritual heir of Abraham's promise by faith. Abraham became an heir of God by faith in God's promise that he made to him. Not because his parents and not because of his works. Isaac became an heir of God by God's promise and God's supernatural work, not because of natural birth. Ishmael was not a different kind of heir. The physical fleshly heir. He was 
not an heir. He was a slave. Now, he became very wealthy and a very successful slave, but he was not an heir of Abraham's gospel promises. He was not a child of God. And the false teachers are telling the non-Israelite Christians that they needed to add fleshly sonship to their relationship to God and thus be like Isaac. They have to sort of dig into the Old Testament and take some of those things and, and add them in order to improve their relationship. They had to have a taste of natural born sonship as well. And Paul says, you're forgetting the whole point of that event. Fleshly sonship is not sonship at all. It's slavery masquerading as sonship. You're asking to be treated not more like Isaac. You're asking God to treat you more like Ishmael. Brings us to our second point. Impossible birth is the only way to be an heir of God. Impossible birth is the only way to be an heir of God. We see this in Galatians 4, 24 to 27. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants, one from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She's Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Stop there. Paul again says here, the problem is not that these people are using the Old Testament, that they care too much about the Old Testament, the part of the Bible written before Jesus came. The problem is that you know too little of it. You're ignoring the main points and picking out a couple of verses. Have you paid no attention to the plan of redemption, Paul is saying? The plan of salvation? The promises of how God would save and, and build a people for salvation? Have you not paid attention how this is constantly moved forward by supernatural birth to a barren woman? Have you not paid attention to this? Isaac was born by supernatural birth to a barren woman, not natural birth. Isaac, Isaac's wife, Rebecca, was also barren and only conceived her twins after a long wait. And after Isaac pleaded with God to grant them children by miracle. The next generation, Israel's barren wife, Rachel, eventually gave birth to Joseph, whom God used to rescue his people from the famine that would have killed them. Samson. We all know Samson, a great rescuer of God's people from their enemies, was also born to a barren woman. And his birth was announced beforehand by an angel. The last judge of Israel who would anoint King David, who would start the monarchy by anointing King David. His name is Samuel. His mom was also a barren woman, Hannah. Also a barren woman. You see, over and over and over, the plan of salvation, God building his family, family of saved ones, family of heirs, over and over, it is moved forward by supernatural birth rather than natural birth. Now, there's a, the last prophet in the Old Testament. Maybe you guys know the last prophet in the Old Testament. John the Baptist. Although we only meet him in the New Testament, he is the last prophet of the Old Testament. Wouldn't you know it? His mom was also a barren woman. 
And the angel of the Lord comes and announces his birth beforehand, announcing this to Zechariah in the temple. But who is a more barren woman than a virgin? And when the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary to announce that she would conceive and bear the promised Messiah, her response was a reasonable response. How can that be, says Mary, since I do not know a man? And the angel's response was that the Holy Spirit would come upon her and that the power of the Most High would overshadow her and the child would therefore be called Holy, the Son of God. And the angel continued, Behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. This is Luke chapter one. And we see impossible birth is the only way to be an heir of God. So Paul reminded us that the promise to Abraham about a seed and the coming offspring from his flesh would be the great heir, the singular heir, the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet he too was also born of a virgin. And taking history of, of God's dealings with his people and that prophecy that Paul quotes from Isaiah, you see in verse 27, he's quoting from Isaiah. This is a prophecy that highlights the point. God's children are those who are born supernaturally. That means not by their physical birth, by virtue of the fact they inherit it from their children, and not by things that they do to earn real sonship, but by trusting in the promises of God. Now that means the household of God for many, many, for many years, for generations, it has always included a mixture of people. People who are actual heirs and people who are not actual heirs, but more like slaves. People who aren't really children of God, but they are amongst the children of God. They are acting in some ways like the children of God but they're not really the heirs of God and neither are they the heirs of Abraham. They're just masquerading that way. Heirs and slaves look alike for a time. Remember Paul said that? All those who were under the law in Israel but didn't trust in the promises made to Abraham were not actually children of Abraham, but they were actually very similar to Ishmael, temporarily living among the household of God but not actual heirs. The only way to be an heir of God, I'm going to say it again, the only way to be an heir of God, the only way to be an heir of God, to be an heir of Abraham is by supernatural birth. By the Lord giving you his spirit, making you spiritually alive and to trust the promises of God. The only way. No one, Jew or non-Jew, is born an heir of God or an heir of Abraham even. It must come from supernatural birth. This is why when Jesus is speaking with Nicodemus, who was a teacher of the law, he was a Pharisee. He said that no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again, born from above, born by the spirit. And this comes together with trusting the promises of God. 
Now, remember when Jesus says this, the man must be born again to see the king. Remember Nicodemus, teacher of the law, expert in the Old Testament? Remember what he's saying? How can this be? Should a man enter again his mother and be born again? And remember, look at Jesus' response. We find this in John chapter 3, verse 10. Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear testimony to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, only, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. See how Jesus is squishing all of those stories, Hannah and Sarah, all serving them all into one and saying, Nicodemus, God has one son, naturally. No one else is his son except by faith in the promise about that one son. Nicodemus, nothing is new. This isn't new. You need to have faith in the gospel promises. And the Spirit makes you a new creation. Now, Paul continues on this theme. The division of the children of Sarah compared to the children of Hagar, right? Heirs versus slaves. True heirs versus supposed heirs. And he, he continues on with this idea of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the the city in, 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 in the land of Israel that stood when Paul was talking about these things. And he compared, and he says, the, this Jerusalem is, is the capital city of Israel. And it often just stood for the people, the citizens of Jerusalem. In fact, the citizens of all of Israel, sometimes in, in the words of the prophets. It was the place where David reigned, the place where the temple of God was built. The Psalms and the prophets used to speak about the people of God, the citizens of the kingdom, not just the city. But those prophets also, when speaking of Jerusalem, they also started speaking about a new Jerusalem, a Jerusalem above, a city which was eternal, a city with glorious life, no pain and no sorrow, with many citizens, the Jerusalem above, as Paul calls this. And Paul says the Galatians citizens are not citizens of a worse Jerusalem. Not of uh, a a different Jerusalem in that sense where it's a, a spiritual but not a physical Jerusalem. He's saying, no, no, you are citizens of the real Jerusalem. Anybody who claims citizenship in that, that, that Jerusalem that existed and in Paul's day is claiming the same things as Ishmael would have been. Now, the difference between Jerusalem above and Jerusalem present when Paul walked on the earth is not that one is physical and the other is spiritual. No. Everybody who is an heir, a citizen of that Jerusalem, will receive true physical life as its citizens. When the Lord Jesus returns, we will inherit Beautiful, rich, true, real life, not just spiritual life, but real land to walk on with real feet, real food to eat, 
Real bodies that will not get sick and can't get COVID or cancer. And in all of these rich physical inheritance, the sweetest of all will be the presence of God. These are simply all just the perfect place to enjoy being the children of God. And you are a citizen of the real Jerusalem simply by trusting in the promises that God has made to that singular son by a supernatural birth, a spiritual birth rather than a physical birth or physical work that you do. Takes us to our third point. Those who are born supernaturally will be hated by those who consider themselves children of God by the flesh. Those born supernaturally will be hated by those who consider themselves children of God by the flesh. Let's see the last few verses here, starting at verse 28. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. Just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the slave of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. And there, Ishmael persecuted Isaac. He threatened him and he mocked him. He wanted him to feel like he was actually not an heir, not the true son of Abraham, not the one who would inherit God's good promises to Abraham. He was maybe part of the household, but not really the heir. And so these Galatian Christians, some of whom were not Jewish, says God, or Paul says to them, it's not Isaac who's persecuting you, it's Ishmael. It's not an actual heir that's persecuting you. It's somebody who's actually a false heir. They have no claim to Abraham unless they have Abraham's faith, unless they're sons of promise. Only if they inherit by faith alone. If they trust that salvation is by grace alone in Christ and faith in that one heir. That's how it was from the beginning. The false heirs always hate the true heirs, those who inherit by faith. Those who inherit by supernatural sonship rather than by natural sonship. That's why Abel was killed by Cain. It's why the prophets which God sent to Israel were persecuted and jailed or killed and hated. Because the people insisted their relationship with God was secured by their relationship to them or their sacrifices at the temple. No, we're doing the rules that God gave to all of his children. We're doing those and we're physically God's children. We're free. We're, you can't touch us. God can't punish us because we're his heirs. And his prophets came and said, you're not his heirs. You're not his heirs just outwardly. That's not how it works. It is by faith in God that the righteous will live. Now, a difficult passage, to be sure. Hopefully, a little less difficult when we put it in its context. So maybe you're understanding the point that Paul is making to, his, to the people here in Galatia. But still, you're wondering, okay, how does this apply to me? I understand the point now, hopefully. But why is it relevant? It is relevant for a couple of reasons. It is relevant for a couple of reasons. One, throughout church history, the church always has to deal with lawlessness in church culture. The second is that we will always be tempted to improve 
on adoption simply based on Christ's merits. So let's deal with the first one first. Dealing with lawlessness in the church culture. Throughout church history, there have been repeated moments where vast numbers of people, vast numbers of people, repeat it again, vast numbers of people claiming to be Christians and churches have been living openly immoral lives. Throughout church history, this happens over and over again, where people claiming to be Christians in churches living openly and proud immoral lives. Over and again. Over and again. And here is how the church is repeatedly tempted to deal with it. False teachers have seized this opportunity to say that the gospel needs to be improved on. And their favorite place to go to grab things to improve on the gospel is the Old Testament. And to export things from that place, that time where they were treated as juvenile heirs, sippy cups, right? Extra rules and saying, no, 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 this is better. And the people in the Old Testament are up in heaven listening to this and be like, don't be jealous of us. We were jealous of you. Don't be fools and go back there. This happened very early in the church's history. How do we deal with lots of lawlessness and and wickedness and people openly living sinful lives and calling themselves Christians? Generation after generation, the church led by the Pope added more and more Old Testament-ish rituals to improve the gospel of adoption by faith in Jesus' merits alone. Adding a priesthood, a priesthood, after the final priest had come and offered the last and final sacrifice. Let's let's go to the Old Testament and grab the priesthood. You can't improve on the gospel. But they do that. Happened with the Mormons, also with the priesthood. Happened with Jehovah's Witnesses. It happened with Seventh-day Adventists. It happens over and over and over again. And, And my great concern today is that because we live in a similar time as when these bad ideas came up into the church, where there are many people and churches claiming to belong to Christ and yet openly embracing wicked, wicked things of the culture, the sexual revolution, the LGBTQ revolution, all these nonsense ideas, and the church is openly doing this. My strong concern is that if we don't get this passage of Galatians into our souls, this will be the church's solution. Let's improve on the gospel. Dear brothers and sisters, expect it. It will likely happen. Somebody will likely bring the solution to all this nonsense with sexual chaos and say, the solution is to improve on justification by faith and adoption based on Christ's merits. And if they do, you are now, we are now armed with Paul's words to the Galatians about Hagar and Ishmael. They are not improving your sonship. They're abandoning it. There is one heir and you inherit the promises of God only and only and only and only by trusting in that heir's merits, his sufficient record. The second reason why I think this is helpful and relevant to us, not just dealing with the licentiousness of our culture, Christian culture even, 
is that we will constantly be tempted to improve on adoption by Christ's merits. And here's how I think this works often. And you can see it in scripture. Right now, dear brothers and sisters, if you trust in the gospel, you are an heir of God. You are his daughter. You are his son. And a full daughter, a full son, not a junior one, not just a spiritual one, but not a physical one. You are a full body and soul, a child of God. He is with you now. He is your father now. He hears your, your, your prayers. He hears your cries. He hears prayers you didn't even have the strength to pray. He cares for you even more than you could possibly care for yourself. He is your father. You are forgiven. You have eternal life with him. And you will inherit the world with him. A perfect place without fear, without sorrow, without sin, without persecution, without cancer, without losing a loved one, without anybody betraying you without COVID, without losing a job, without worrying about how you're going to pay your bills, you will inherit that. It is certain because Christ's merits alone have secured it. But for a time, you will suffer for being his son or daughter. And you will be tempted to think that the present sweetness of being God's child and the future blessings of inheriting a world perfected and living with him there, you will be tempted to think, oh, it's not quite enough. Oh, what I would give to improve on my relationship with God now, to to add some, to, to maybe coerce him into answering more of my prayers. And false teachers will, will prey on you. Oh, you have cancer, and God hasn't answered your prayer to heal you. Do these things. And you will be a super heir of God. And he will, yes, forgiveness is most important. But he will also heal you of your cancer. And he will do these things. He will do these things. Dear brothers and sisters, the pattern of sonship and daughtership in scripture has always been a beautiful, sweet, loving, father-child relationship with God in the middle of suffering for a time. Oh, and then glory later. And it is so, so, so worth it. Psalm 23. God prepares a table for you in the presence of your enemies while you're being persecuted, while you're suffering, while you are in the the valley of the shadow of death. He, He is with you and it's sweet. Oh, but it doesn't end there. One day you will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Dear brothers and sisters, anytime somebody comes offering you a place, a way to improve your sonship with God, that faith in Christ and Christ's merits are not enough, you need to look at them as if they are offering you Ishmael instead of Isaac. There is one heir. His name is Jesus, and his merits are all sufficient. He came to win sonship for you. He died for your sins. He rose from the dead and he will return to bring all the sweet eternal gifts of the new Jerusalem to those who trust in him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have not left us on our own to become your children by something about us, our DNA or our works, acting like your children or anything like that. We thank you for the sweet gift of those 
very difficult stories in scripture where a woman is, is so grieved because she is barren and yet you, through that hardship, demonstrate the gospel in a sweet way that we need to hear right now. And so Lord, I pray that we would not just believe that being your child by faith is, you know, it's enough because it's, it's meager, but it's enough. Lord, let us get rid of that foolishness. It's not just meager and enough. It is all surpassing, so satisfying. It is greater than anything we could ever hope or imagine. And Lord, let us rest on the merits, the all-sufficient merits of the long-expected Jesus. And Lord, let us be satisfied, joyfully satisfied in him until he returns. And I pray this in Jesus' name.